Today, I would like to talk to you about being satisfied with Jesus, being satisfied in Jesus. There is so much in our world that, that claims to be able to satisfy our hungers, our thirsts, our desires, and leaves us wanting. But actually, everything we're looking for is found in Jesus. And to help us think about this today, we're going to enter again into the sort of the back end of the Christmas story that's found in Luke chapter 2. So you kind of have the, the highs and the excitement of the, uh, of the shepherds and the, uh, the wise men and everything. Else, but after the birth of Jesus, as with all births, there's a little bit of admin that has to be done. And so, Mary and Joseph go with the baby Jesus to Jerusalem uh, to present him at the temple. This is a way of presenting a child as a way of saying thank you to God, but also tied into it, it was a way of being reminded of all the promises that God had for this people that he was going to use these people to bring love and grace and justice into his world. So we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was, a right, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, and light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Amen. Amen. The Masai Mara, the Grand Canyon, the Great Barrier Reef, these are three things, according to many people, that you must see before you die uh, on the bucket list, if you wish. And um, we're, we're sort of newish to Brighton. We're not sort of jetting off to those kind of places. But we are keen to get to know the surrounding area a bit. So every time uh, people come to see us, uh, we're often Googling what should you do. And uh, I came across this blog, 29 Things to Do Before You Die in Brighton. Um, I think they probably could have been phrased slightly better. Um, it starts quite low uh, with uh, coffee in the lanes. Anyone here had coffee in the lanes? I mean, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, it finishes with base jumping off the Brighton I-360. So quite a steep adrenaline curve. Maybe you've had a lot of coffee in the lanes. Um, 
But the existence of bucket lists reveals a sort of hunger that people have to get the most from life, not to miss out, to get your money's worth. And I suppose at the, the positive end, that's a, that's a zeal for life, to enjoy creation. But on the negative end, it can become a sort of underlying anxiety, the fear of missing out, FOMO, that sort of undermines and deprives us of joy and leads us chasing things that will not satisfy you. What do you think you need to see today to satisfy you? What are you hungering for today that you think will satisfy you? Because into all of this comes the intriguing figure of Simeon, one of the lesser known cast members of the Christmas story. Simeon is a man ready to die. But he's a man ready to die, not because he's unhappy, but because he's satisfied. He's seen everything he needs to see. He's ready to go. He's completed his bucket list. His bucket list only had one thing on it, which was to see God's salvation. And he says, I've seen it. As he sees Jesus as a baby, he says this, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. There was only one thing that Simeon said he needed to see before he died. There is only one thing that Simeon says that you need to see before you die, and that is Jesus. Which is a bit of a bold claim, right? Now, Simeon's this interesting guy. He's a devout Jew. He's waiting for God to do what he's promised he would do. Simeon looked to the world, as many of us do. We know that this world is not right. But he'd also seen in God's word, through his promise, that God had promised to bring about justice, to bring about healing. And he was waiting, and God had revealed to him not only that it was coming, but that he would see its coming in his lifetime. And as he sees this baby, he says, it's here. It's here. This is it. Which is unusual. Like, it's quite a big claim. It's a bit of a go big or go uh, home kind of claim. I mean, lots of people make pretty over-the-top claims about their babies, right? But Simeon is not an over-enthusiastic parent. He says, God's salvation has arrived, so I can depart. He says, what we've hoped for is found in Jesus. Now the strange thing is, Simeon hadn't seen what you and I have been able to see. He hadn't seen the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the result of that going to the ends of the earth. All he'd seen was this baby and the Holy Spirit going, this is it. And so what I've been wondering about is like, what had he seen? Because it is a bold claim that this is what will satisfy you, but actually, it's not a claim that we're not used to. Pretty much of all advertising that surrounds us, that you'll encounter today, uh, works by making you aware of your hunger and then saying, you're going to satisfy it with our product. Like, I'm, 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 I'm a glutton for Apple, uh, like, and every time they bring out their products, you know, they'll go through everything they've been through that, that brought them to this pinnacle moment of this thing that you need to buy. And uh, when they brought out their last phone, they went through the history of all of their phones, and somebody helpfully for me, or slightly passive-aggressively, photoshopped underneath it, 
did not satisfy your soul. The iPhone 8 did not satisfy your soul. The iPhone X did not satisfy your soul. The iPhone 11 Pro Max will not satisfy your soul, as evidenced by the fact that you're needing to buy a new one. Now, it might not be Apple for you. You might be an Android person, and well, then you know it won't satisfy your soul. But we all have things that we think will satisfy us, right? I've lost half of you. Um, we all have things that we think will satisfy us and won't. And Simeon says, if you see Jesus, you have everything. If you see him. And what I've been trying to work out is all he'd seen was Jesus as a baby. And that was enough. Simeon still lived in the mess. He still lived in the middle. He still lived in the now and the not yet of God's kingdom that all of us live in. And yet he says, because I've seen Jesus, I, I, I can be satisfied. And he says, when you see him, when you dwell on him, as you behold him, you will become satisfied. And this is great news because it deals with a lot of the things that steal our joy and cause us to go astray. So what did he see? Well, first of all, he saw many things. But one of the things he sees is that God works on the fringes. God works on the fringes. We read that when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses... Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Jesus just joins in with everyone else. He doesn't get any special treatment like his baptism. He just comes along with everyone else, joins the crowd. Uh, and there's no like a set aside moment for him. But as he get, joins in with everyone else on the fringes, we read, moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the Lord uh, required, i.e. they were obedient, and God does amazing things when we're obedient. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Now, we don't know if he asked permission, but he just uh, kind of got enthusiastic and did it. And this is what he says. He says that as he holds this baby, God is working on the fringes. And, and you see this with people who finish well. You see this with people who are following Jesus and finish well. One, one person for Kate and I um, was this amazing woman who, who died last year. She finished last well, a woman called Dr. Margaret Hodson. She was a member of our church in London. She was also uh, a Kate's doctor, actually, at her hospital. And, and uh, she was probably one of the most unassuming people I have ever met, especially considering what she achieved in her lifetime. Um, she had many obstacles to becoming a doctor, one being that she had really poor health as a child. She suffered really badly from asthma. And, and sort of strangely, I think the Lord then led her into caring for other people uh, with cystic fibrosis, a lung condition. And um, she was placed just working with these, these people and then felt that God was calling her to stay. And, and what fascinated me about that time is that was not a particularly glorious career choice, sort of 40, uh, 50 years ago. Um, cystic fibrosis at that time, there wasn't much treatment for it. And actually, it was mostly preparing people for an early death. Not much glory in that. Um, and she felt called cool to it. And she started by doing two things. First of all, the first thing she did was she worked with the chaplains at her hospital to make the Sunday service accessible for people with life-threatening illnesses who weren't used to going to church. I love that. She just got really practical. And then she set to work in her medical career to improve the life of these 
patients. Now, as well as like just the regular kind of medical hurdles of trying to treat something like this, she also faced discrimination. She said this, the consultants made it very clear that this was not a suitable job for a lady. And various people tried to talk me into taking a laboratory job. On one occasion, I was seriously considering accepting, but the Holy Spirit gave me no peace for 48 hours. I realized it was not part of God's plan and turned it down. And one week later, I was offered the job. And we are so grateful that she listened to the Spirit and not to other people. She went on to write over 300 medical papers. She broke medical ground. Most of what she developed is now practiced worldwide. Uh, worldwide. She became a director of education at the Royal Brompton Hospital. She received medals. She received an OBE. And it's fascinating because when she started, most patients didn't live beyond the first year of their life. And now there's a life expectancy of 50 and beyond, much of that down to her work. Now, do you know what? Whenever I tried to talk to her about her work, all she really wanted to do was give me feedback on my preaching and talking about what was going on in the church. She uh, became a lay chaplain at the hospital and a lay reader at the church. Um, and the thing was, what she did with her life, starting on the fringes, went on to impact millions simply because she listened to the Holy Spirit and she followed Jesus and she followed him at the fringes of everything that looked glamorous and looked important. This is what Jesus did. Much of Jesus' career is focused on the fringes. Yes, we read, you have prepared in the sight, this salvation, you have prepared in the sight of all nations, but you only get to see it if you're like Simeon and you're willing to go and look for it. See, many people in the temple that day just walked on by. They just walked on by and they missed it. This is such good news. In a world driven by self-promotion, God's salvation can happen in your life whether or not other people notice it. Whether or not other people are cheering you on, even if you're not in the limelight. Actually, to be honest, from this, it shows us that especially when you're not in the limelight, you can kind of be more sure that you're in your calling than maybe when you are in the limelight. This is key to know if you're in a tough time, if you're in a lonely or a dark place, you can be satisfied in him because you can be assured that he is at work. God does his wonders in dark places. From growing in Mary's womb to resting dead in the tomb, God does his most marvelous work in dark places. If you are in a place like that at the moment, you can be even more sure that he is working out his salvation in your life. All the most important people in this story are people on the fringes. This story, this part of the story in Luke, it's the poor, the old, the bereaved, the widowed, a baby. This is where God works. And it sets us free from the metrics of the world. And we can get on with the act of loving our neighbor whether or not anyone else notices because we know that the one who matters most has noticed and that's where he is already at work. God works on the fringes. But the other thing Simeon sees is that God is not in a hurry. And he sees this because God comes as a baby. Now, I've been present at the birth of all three of our children. And actually, two of them were twins. So it was kind of a buy one, free one, uh, speedy up situation. But the thing is, I still don't think I really believe 
that every person here, let alone the whole world, came into the world in the same way. It's so inefficient. It's so slow that each and every one of us grew inside another person. It just blows my mind. It's just so inefficient. It's so slow. It's so costly. And that is how God enters the world. God submits to time. When he came to save the world, he didn't just go, bam, done. The first thing he did was spend nine months in Mary's womb. It was so countercultural then. It's so countercultural now. Back then, there were these groups called the Zealots. They felt that God's salvation was going to be political, which it is, but it was like political in the now sense, in the is on the me sense. And if it's now and it's on me, that very quickly gets violent. And they tried to make it happen on their time frame. And Jesus comes and he takes his time. God really likes time. He made it. It was his idea. Time is God's way of stopping everything from happening at once. And I think we struggle to enjoy time in the way that God does. We find it hard. And and it is a tension, right? We're supposed to be expectant, but that doesn't mean immediate. We read about Simeon. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for what God has promised to do. But it's easy to get confused with expectancy, with immediacy. And many people have lost their faith because of that confusion. Immediacy says, God needs to do what I want him to do on my time frame. And if he doesn't, I'm out. Whether it's expectancy says, I'm going to trust God to do what he said he'll do on his timeline. Do you know what? The quickest way to lose your joy is to be in a hurry. The quickest way to lose your satisfaction is to be in a hurry. And that's really tough because nearly everything in our society and in our culture, this cultural moment is poised towards immediacy, to speeding things up, to making them faster. Like this really hit um, uh, me, like um, I've shared this before, but Kate and I for many years were struggling with infertility. We, we had to wait a long time until we were able to have children. And the, one of the things that I, I found hard was the time, the, the sort of, it, it takes a month. You, you find out you're not pregnant. It's a whole month of sort of dealing with it before you, uh, you kind of start again. And, and I think the, the challenge was, and it's a strange analogy, but everything we do forms us. And I was the generation that grew up on computer games. And when you didn't get what you wanted, you just restarted the level and tried again until you got the result that you wanted. But that's not how life works. That's not how God is forming us. It seems that God's remedy for the fear of missing out, for dissatisfaction, is not the adrenaline rush of success, but to slowly grow within us a deeply rooted joy. And the thing is, it's not just the things in the outside world is also the things on the internal world, that he works in us slowly. Now, the good news of that is if you are aware of things in your life that you would wish were different, areas of your character that you're like, oh, I wish I was further on in my journey, the good news is that that means you can only be aware of that if the Holy Spirit as is at work. And that's the last thing that Simeon sees. God is working on the fringes. He is not in a hurry, but God is intimately involved. God is intimately involved. He is really, really present. Like 
I love the picture of the friendship that we see here between the Holy Spirit and Simeon. I want this kind of friendship with the Holy Spirit. Like a few things. First, it's described the Holy Spirit was on him. The Holy Spirit rests on him. The Holy Spirit was involved in him, in his body, in his life. Like the Holy Spirit doesn't consume us. He's gentle. He doesn't want to overtake us. He doesn't want to control us. In fact, actually, it's the opposite. The Holy Spirit gives us self-control so we can freely, joyfully follow him. But we also see that he's not just a power. He's a person. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. I, I love that. They're sharing secrets. They're like this. They're like, you know, when you, you, you've, when you were a kid and you had certain friends that you shared your secrets with and, and, it, and it was joyful because there were other people you didn't share them with. That's the kind of joy. That's the kind of intimacy that we get to have with the Holy Spirit. And not only is the Holy Spirit on him and talking to him, he's guiding him. We read that moved by the Holy Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And what we see here is that the Holy Spirit rarely seems to shout. He seems to much prefer to nudge us. And he especially loves to do it when we're open to it. That was part of Kate and I's story. Um, as many of you know, before we were here, we were uh, for many years served uh, a church in Malaysia. And I have to say, moving to Malaysia was a little bit of a curveball. Uh, it wasn't really on our plan. Kate and I actually thought we were called to Manchester. So we thought like northwest, instead it was southeast Asia. And uh, uh, we thought it was Manchester, it was Malaysia, so we got M and A right in our calling. The first two letters was as far as we'd got right. And um, the, the reason it came about is we'd been, we, I'd trained uh, for ordination and um, we started praying like, oh gosh, like we need to go somewhere soon. Lord, where do you want us? And we were praying and we were asking and in all the usual spaces, we didn't really get any guidance. Uh, big conferences, a, a church, kind of seeking him in prayer. And then we were on holiday and we were sat by the pool and I just felt the Holy Spirit nudged me to ask Kate a question. And it was the most random question ever. The question was, um, if our friends, Miles and Sarah, uh, went to Asia to plant a church and asked us to go with them, would we go? And I just, I felt nudged. So I asked Kate and she just looked at me, lifted up her sunglasses and went, yeah. And then we went back to reading our books. And, and then later that night we discussed it and we said, well, that was strange, wasn't it? Because first of all, and we didn't know anything about it at this stage. We're like, our friends, Miles and Sarah, they're not leaving to plant a church, let alone to Asia. And even if they were, why would they ask us? But for some reason we discussed it. And then forgot about it. And then a month later, uh, Miles and Sarah came to me and they said, look, we've been invited uh, by Archbishop Moonhing in Malaysia to go and plant this church. They pitched the vision and they said, well, obviously now you'll need to go and discuss it with Kate. And I said, well, actually, I think we've discussed it already. Um, now, obviously, you don't make a decision based on that alone. But we would have never considered it if the Holy Spirit hadn't nudged us to talk about it and to explore it in that moment. The Holy Spirit loves to guide you. And he loves to guide you into things that you weren't expecting. And the thing he loves to guide you most towards is not a thing, but it's a person. He loves to point you to Jesus. So the main test to know if something is of the Holy Spirit is that does it point to Jesus? And does it bring unity in his family, the church, 
around Jesus. We read that moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. The Spirit leads Simeon to Jesus. And when you put all three of those together, that God works on the fringes, that he is not in a hurry, and that he is intimately involved, what you see is that God loves to work in the ordinary. God loves to work in the ordinary of your life. Yes, the otherness of God is in his greatness, but the otherness of God is also in his nearness, because no other would draw so near to me. God wants to draw near to you. This is how close. Verse 28, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What a beautiful picture that is of Simeon taking Jesus in his arms and we get to do that each day. As James shared with us last week, as you pick up your Bible, as you open it, it's like you are holding the person Jesus. And as you read it, you will behold him and you will become like him and you will find the satisfaction that you are looking for in him. The simplest way to do it, as James shared with us and championed last week, is the Bible in one year. If you've never done it, if you're not doing it, please humor me. Just do it this week. Just get the app start it. Just don't even go back to January 1st. Just start it today. I only listen to it. I do it at 1.2 speed, but it's amazing. It gives you the whole picture of God's salvation every year. And as you hear it, it will deepen your satisfaction in him. And it will leave you satisfied with Jesus. Because one of the main things you see as you read the Bible is that God is satisfied in Jesus. It says this, um, it says this, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. When Simeon sees Jesus, he realizes that there is nothing left to do. He says, look, if God is willing to humble himself, to humiliate himself, to become a baby in a nappy, actually there's nothing left to do. Every other salvation does not leave you with peace but leaves you with something to buy, something to add, or something to do. Salvation by the latest technology will not leave you at peace. It will leave you out of pocket. Salvation by romantic relationship will not leave you at peace. It will leave you constantly performing. Salvation by crafting an identity will not leave you at peace. It will leave you constantly, endlessly working. But Jesus' salvation leaves nothing left to do. Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. And we get a glimpse of this. This is why Simeon says to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Because on this day, Jesus was carried up the steps as a baby to present his life and offer his life to God. And he did it. He lived the perfect life that you and I should live. He lived it in our place and he satisfied his father in heaven. But 33 years later, as a man, Jesus walks up these same steps at the beginning of Holy Week, not to offer his life, but to offer his death. His death on a cross in our place. And as he dies, the love of God is satisfied. And that his love is satisfied is done because his anger at sin is satisfied. 
What does that mean? Why is it important, especially as we come to share communion? God is love. God is love. God is not anger. God is love. And he is motivated by love. We are told that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It wasn't that God was so slightly, passively, aggressively annoyed at you that he sent his only son. He loved you. And so he sent his only son. But as you will know, if you love, love is angered when he sees its beloved injured. And God is angered as he looks at that which he's loved and is sinned against. And as the Bible talks about it, anger doesn't seem to cut it. The word that it often uses is the wrath of God. The wrath is what we experience when you and I look at any kind of injustice, when we feel any kind of injustice. A cursory glance at social media will reveal that to you. If that's true with us, how much more our Father in heaven as a God of justice, as he looks at his world and as it is injured. And in the same way that injustice has to be judged out there, it also has to be judged in here. You know, becoming aware of God's anger will guide us towards justice. You know, as we look through church history, you know, it was when William Wilberforce, he mobilized the church and society against slavery, not by showing that God wasn't angry, but that God was angered when any person is enslaved. When God sees people enslaved, the innocent bombed, people abused, people taking advantage for any kind of agenda, he is angered. And the mystery of the cross is that God is able to judge sin, to say this is wrong and yet you are loved. And because his wrath is satisfied, it means he's able to work with us to bring this justice that he wants to see come on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus came to do. Simeon says to Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a great sign that will be spoken against so that thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus' life, death and resurrection turned the world upside down. The way we think, the way we protest, the way we live, has been shaped, even if we don't realize it, by what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it means we should not be satisfied with any life that does not resonate with this story of holiness and this story of beauty. Don't settle for any promise of an easy life. The only thing that satisfies you is the life and death of Jesus. That is where the life is. Jesus offers his life to God and God is satisfied. Jesus then offers his death and God is satisfied. And then the most remarkable thing, if you thought God coming as a baby was humbling, this is even more. He then comes to you and he offers you his son and he asks you, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with Jesus? Do you want him? Will you put your trust in him? Will you follow him? Will you look at him closely this year? Because as you do, you will find that everything you're longing for is found in what he has done for you. Because as you behold him, you will become like him. And this is what has happened throughout the ages. As people dwell on the person of Jesus, the overflow is joy and creativity. 500 years ago, Leonardo da Vinci painted this picture, Salvatore Mundi, savior of 
the world, showing Jesus about to bless the world that he's saved. Now, if I'm honest, this picture, not my cup of tea, uh, I wouldn't put it up, uh, but others really like it. And it was judged to be so excellent that recently it sold for $450 million, the most expensive painting ever sold. But the silly thing is, you can have the real thing for free. And it won't cost you anything. You can encounter the real person of Jesus today. You can receive his forgiveness afresh as we celebrate communion today. You can encounter him by his spirit through his word every day. And it won't cost you 450 million. The only thing that he asks is that you receive. And as you receive him, you will find the satisfaction that you're longing for. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand? And... James is going to come and lead us in communion. But let's pray. Oh, Tim is going to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us and that you sent your son to die in our place so that we could be set free from sin, from shame, and set free into the future that you have for us. Remind us afresh, we pray, as we celebrate now. Amen. Amen.